Welcome to Visiting Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. As with our prior two experiments in oncology education, we arranged for a clinical investigator specializing in breast cancer, in this case Dr. Charles Geyer, to spend the day seeing patients with metastatic breast cancer in a specially arranged clinic of a medical oncologist in practice, for this program, Dr. Atif Hussein. After the clinic, I sat down with both docs to review the cases. The first patient is an important reminder that a great deal of clinical research occurs in community-based practice and also that every medical oncologist must deal with a variety of individual beliefs and value systems in their patients. Dr. Hussein presented the case. This is a 55-year-old woman who started having pain in the left breast approximately January 2007. She had a mammogram and a sonogram, and she was found to have an approximately one by one centimeter mass in the left breast with some redness of the skin. The patient had a biopsy scheduled. She delayed that for a couple of months, and in June of 2007, she had the biopsy done from the left breast, and that showed infiltrating lobular carcinoma. That was ER positive, PR positive, and her to knew by immunohistochemistry to be 3 plus and positive by fish testing. At that time, the patient consulted with her family members and she elected to go and do alternative therapies, which she did between June and December 07. What kind of therapies? She told that she had some cleansing treatment, she had some herbs. A lot of dietary. Dietary. Changes. What kind of work does she do? What's her background? She's actually a mom. She doesn't work. She has four kids. But her family clearly has major influence on her, especially an elderly aunt. About the alternative medicine? Yes. So yes, they were sort of kind of pushing her? Yes, big time. What was your take, Chuck, on sort of what was going on with her in terms of this alternative medicine? From her story today, she clearly was heavily swayed by the family that had told her that if you take chemotherapy you will die in a short period of time unequivocally. And she followed this regimen. She did start to tire of it, listening to her story. She was thinking, well, if this is what it takes to stay alive, you know, I'm going to die anyway. Why do this? Shortly thereafter, she started to develop the severe back pain that kind of broke through, that that approach was not effective. And she came to Dr. Hussein's hospital and fortunately now is getting more conventional therapy. But unfortunately, there was a lot of progression of disease during that six-month period when she was undergoing the alternative treatments. So once she decided she wanted to move forward with more traditional therapy, what happened then? She actually came to our hospital to be seen by one of the oncologists, but because of her severe pain, she couldn't walk. She had to be admitted around the holidays in 2007, December, to the hospital for pain management. And at that time, metastatic workup was done, and that showed extensive disease in almost every bone and vertebrae and long bone in her body, as well as a huge mass in the left breast of around 8 by 6 centimeters, as well as a few less than 2 centimeter spots in the liver. MRI of the brain was negative, and we managed her pain, and then we put her on a study that is a randomized study using... Did you say about she had a biopsy? She had a biopsy from the bone. And what did that show? And that showed infiltrating lobular carcinoma of the breast, and we retested her. She was ER positive, PR positive, and HER2-new positive. 
she was enrolled on a study using herceptin and taxol with either lapatinib or placebo and the patient won on the study and she received cycle one week one on January 4th, 2008. She tolerated the treatment very well. She was on high doses of fentanyl and oxycodone for her pain. In addition, she was started on Zometa, four milligrams IV every four weeks, which she continues to take. During the first cycle of Herceptin, Paclitaxel, and either Lapatinib or Placebo, she had grade 3 diarrhea, watery, with a grade 2 acneform rash over her skin, especially the face requiring some treatment with antibiotics. We treated her diarrhea and that subsided. The patient became compliant with using Lomotil at least twice a day, even if she doesn't have diarrhea. And after the first cycle, without modifying the doses of treatment, she tolerated the treatment very well with minimal to no diarrhea at all. She received three cycles of Herceptin, Paclitaxel, and either Lapatinib and Placebo. And workup revealed that the mass in the left breast decreased by more than 50%. The lesions in the liver were still there, but they were less both in size and in number. And her pain improved markedly, although she continued to be on 50 to 75 mcg per hour of fentanyl patch. Were you thinking about radiation therapy at any point? No. The pain was very well controlled on medications. We actually thought of radiation, but she never took any. So where is she right now? Right now, she is to receive cycle number six, week number three of the treatment. How did she appear to you today, Chuck? What's going on in terms of the rash? She's clearly markedly better than she was first of the year. She quickly noticed she was getting up and down out of chairs without any evidence of pain, and she subsequently acknowledged that she didn't even fill the last fentanyl patch prescription, and she's taking a couple of oxycodone every other day, so marked reduction in her pain. Pain she describes now is more generalized aching across her shoulders. It sounds more muscular and tension-related, frankly, than skeletal metastases. Her breast exam, they're still uh, thickening superiorly, some residual mass effect, but she said, too, she's actually starting to worry because the breast is starting to get some of its normal contour and a fat quality to it that she's worrying that that means the cancer may come back, that it's getting more toward a normal appearance, which I thought was interesting that she had that concern. Did she have any rash today? She still has the acne form rash that she said, she said, well, it's covered up with makeup. So across the malar eminences, you really can't see the acne. It's just more of a papular because she's got things covered up with makeup. Sure sounds like she's on lapatinib rather than placebo, yeah. huh? We had talked about that. If she's on placebo, she's developed toxicities that we clearly do associate with lapatinib. I found her to be an interesting patient because she's someone who clearly fled traditional medicine, went that route, but since she's been over in this camp, amazingly compliant and persistent because when I saw this case, I was struck by it because the Memorial Sloan Kettering Group and Dana-Farber reported basically that they found this regimen was excessively toxic to use in adjuvant therapy. And we came back from the meeting and we're quickly modifying our doses in B41 based on that information. That now, when you say this regimen... The PTL part of it, the, the paclitaxel, lapatinib, 
I mean, what do we know about that triplet? How much data is there out there on that? Well, the data, there have been two relatively large phase two studies that I'm aware of. One was the one being done at Memorial with the Harvard hospitals, and then Edith Perez is doing another one, and they both have around 80, 85 patients. And the Memorial study that reported in a poster at ASCO going into it had said it was in adjuvant patients, dose-dense AC, followed by the PTL regimen at this dose and schedule. And they set up criteria prospectively on what they would need to see to consider it a feasible dose and schedule for adjuvant therapy. And they basically said, if we don't finish that section, ignoring the AC, in more than 20% of patients, it would be considered not feasible, and the actual number was 30%. What kind of problems did they run into? Well, diarrhea, 20% of the patients had grade 3 diarrhea, and there were a few patients who had grade 2 or grade 1 who said, I don't care how you grade it, this isn't acceptable, I'm stopping it. So there was that information that, of course, concerned us for our neoadjuvant B41 study, and Edith Perez, she's going to be reporting her study at San Antonio, but she reported really the same findings, that there was substantial grade 3 diarrhea, and on her study, they were backing the starting dose down from 1,000 milligrams of lapatinib to 750. We're doing that in B41. What's the actual randomization and the eligibility for B41? B41 is basically HER2-positive, palpable, operable breast cancer patients who need neoadjuvant therapy. And the randomization? And the randomization is AC times 4 followed by weekly taxol Herceptin versus AC times 4 weekly taxol Lapatinib versus same with the combination of Lapatinib and Herceptin, so a three-arm trial. Now what about just Lapatinib and taxol? That's been studied also. Well, in the phase 3 study with Lapatinib, taxol ran into problems with early toxic deaths related to diarrhea, they instituted some aggressive management using loperamide and avoided that problem. But there are interaction problems when you combine with paclitaxel with lapatinib. The area under the curve of both drugs goes up a little over 20%. Interestingly, it's not there with docetaxel, apparently, from what I understand. So, you know, that may be the reason. I mean, diarrhea is the most common side effect with lapatinib as a single agent. So it's not surprising that if you run into toxicities with that agent in combination with other drugs. So it really isn't that the diarrhea is unexpected. It's more the severity problem. And then in terms of just trastuzumab lapatinib without chemotherapy, of course, we saw some interesting data at ASCO, which Joyce O'Shaughnessy presented. Maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, this was a study that basically was targeting patients who had progressed on trastuzumab, had had multiple prior chemotherapeutic agents, and the randomization was to discontinue the trastuzumab, start lapatinib, or continue and add the lapatinib. And the initial studies that looked at lapatinib as a single agent the phase two study showed a fairly low response rate. So for me, it wasn't terribly surprising that when you kept the trastuzumab going, that you did seem to augment the activity of the lapatinib. Patients did a bit better with continuation of the trastuzumab rather than discontinuation. So how do you put this together right now? And, and we get back to this patient, but just sort of since we've gone through this, how do you put together right now 
what we know about combining lapatinib with either trastuzumab or trastuzumab and paclitaxel, what you think the clinical research implications are of the data that you just talked about and the clinical implications. Are there situations where you can see using any of these combinations off study? Well, for me personally, the combination of the paclitaxel, Herceptin, Lapatinib has more toxicity than what I would want to use for a palliative patient. I think clearly that increased activity in that late line patient justifies continuing to look at it earlier in a clinical trial situation. I think the adjuvant studies, the neoadjuvant studies continue to make sense after, you know, adjusting for the toxicity. But for me personally, that kind of diarrhea is problematic for a patient that I palliate. It is interesting that, you know, there are patients such as this patient who, if they hang in there and persevere, there does seem to be sometimes an adaptation to it and the diarrhea becomes less problematic, though they do continue to have the acne form rash. So I guess when I saw the data, I I viewed it as something that affirmed the neoadjuvant, the adjuvant trials. I didn't see it as something that would make me want to try it, with the exception of maybe a patient who just said, I don't want any chemotherapy right now, you know. And I can imagine at some point if I've had patients through several chemotherapy drugs with Herceptin, they've had lapatinib, capecitabine. I might at some point want to try them together. This is a patient that signifies the fact that if you talk to people about chemotherapy and even about the clinical studies, they can move from believing only in palliative care or alternative medications to not just chemotherapy, to actually believing to be on a study. And she told us actually if she feels very good that she will be able to contribute to the care of breast cancer and other women in the future. She came 180 degrees from a year ago. Yeah, she said she likes to tell people she's a cancer survivor, sort of almost in their face with it. Yeah. She was, and it was, it was funny. She said she had some sniffles or something. Somebody asked her about it, and she said, no, I'm just a breast cancer survivor. Do you have a cold? She said, no, but I'm a breast cancer survivor. <laughs> I mean, you know, she's makeup and she has yeah. a hat on. I mean, she's a beautiful lady. I wonder if you could just go back and can you talk a little bit about what we know about the mechanism of action, lapatinib and trastuzumab and, you know, potential synergy that could conceivably exist between the two? Trastuzumab, of course, being a monoclonal antibody, is binding to the extracellular domain. Just It's sort of a juxtamembrane positioning there. Lapatinib is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that works intracellularly down inside the cell. And there are some, certainly any kind of abnormality that would inhibit binding of the trastuzumab would lead to resistance. So there's, if the extracellular domain is cleaved, the P95 protein that's left behind, trastuzumab couldn't work on that. If you have you know, heavy levels of the MUC4, the whole glycoprotein family. So there are reasons to think that if binding's a problem, then that should be an advantage. Clearly, if you've got something that is only targeting HER2, 
but you have increased activity of other family members, EGFR, HER3, then you may be able to bypass that HER2 because the trastuzumab doesn't block the dimerization. Pertuzumab does, so that's why it's a different molecule because it blocks the dimerization. So there were those sorts of reasons to think that something intracellularly might work. And so the question comes up, well, is it an alternative treatment or could you actually have potentiation by, in a sense, hitting the same protein at two levels? Basically, when you combine trastuzumab and lapatinib, you're hitting that HER2 molecule at two locations. It's not hitting, it's not truly downstream, like if you were hitting PI3 kinase or something down below. But a study looking at patients who had apparent trastuzumab refractory disease to see if they would do better with monotherapy with lapatinib, or meaning falling doses of trastuzumab lapatinib versus sustaining the doses by continuing the trastuzumab. And the paper that Joyce O'Shaughnessy presented showed that there did seem to be advantages to continuing the two-locus inhibition of the HER2 molecule, even though the single locus seemed to have no longer worked, which, you know, I think is interesting. The unfortunate thing is that two-locus inhibition brings in toxicities that require you to reduce the dose of the lapatinib, and even then, I've not used a lot of it personally, but from what I understand, there's a fatigue that evolves with the combination that patients have to deal with. What do you think is a logical algorithm in terms of deciding whether to use lapatinib or trastuzumab in you know, different clinical situations? For example, the patient who's had adjuvant trastuzumab. These sorts of questions really are asking us what are our biases in the absence of data. I think I am glad to see that NCI Canada is launching a head-to-head study of trastuzumab versus lapatinib, dealer's choice which taxane you want to use that will give us data so we can answer with data, not our biases. My own bias is that trastuzumab is such a well-tolerated active drug that I like to use it with chemotherapy drugs until I feel like the patient didn't get benefit from the last combination. So if I had an adjuvant patient who recurred on trastuzumab, obviously I wouldn't do it. And then so there's always the question about, well, okay, what if it was six months after ending, 12 months? So far, I haven't had anybody do those early relapses. You know, I don't know what my magic number would be. Nine months. So I tend to stay with trastuzumab. I like navalbine. I tend to hold capecitabine in reserve for lapatinib because that's the data that showed the activity, and that's where I tend to like to use lapatinib in combination with capecitabine. Now, where I will change that will be if I have some patient who develops brain metastases as part of their recurrence. I do think... There's clearly enough evidence that trastuzumab has that problem, that hole in its coverage. And while the data for lapatinib certainly isn't conclusive or anything that they can get an indication from or market or any of those things, I think it makes sense. The molecules get in, and I think it is interesting from the 151 study, the study that I was involved with, Two things were interesting. One is in a HER2-positive population being treated with capecitabine, there weren't a lot of METs developed, but 
in those getting lapatinib, there were hardly any. So I think to me there is enough of a reason that if I have brain mets, I start my lapatinib and then I'll make a decision. If I think taxane is a reasonable thing, I use that, though there is the question one could argue, well, but isn't the capecitabine better for CNS penetration? I just think a taxane with trastuzumab substantially easier for most women than the capecitabine lapatinib. When you use a taxane, generally which one do you use? For metastatic disease, I use a braxane, weekly a braxane. I think it is so nice to not have to pre-medicate the patients. I know a lot of people are skeptical about the data from the trials on neuropathy, but I guess in the past I always found it distressful to have to stop effective therapy for neuropathy and then see patients continue to suffer with the neuropathy. And my feel of it in my practice is that since I'm using Abraxane, I don't have that problem. And so I think it's those two factors. And I think that the pre-med is not an insignificant one. Any thoughts about efficacy? You know, I guess we haven't had a comparison of weekly tax all to weekly NAB, but any sort of global, you know, there's a talk about Spark, et cetera, whether or not that whole thing is going to play that's, I guess that could be there as well. I don't think that it's going to be less effective at all. And I guess I haven't really gone through the mental energy. I don't feel like I even need that superiority to tell me to use it. I do see, you know, I have patients responding very well and doing quite well with it. So, Can you talk about the design of the ALTO trial? Well, ALTO, basically the randomization is one of patients receive anthracycline-based therapy and whatever anthracycline. I think they have a number of preferred anthracycline regimens, and then they enter the trial, and they're randomized to trastuzumab for a year, lapatinib for a year, trastuzumab for several months. They let it clear, and then they start lapatinib or the combination. So there are those four arms. Investigators can co-administer taxanes if that's their standard. Weekly taxol is what they're supposed to And in terms of their anti-HER2 therapy, what are the different arms? Well, it's trastuzumab, lapatinib, sequencing with trastuzumab going first, or combination. Any predictions about what they're going to see? No. In terms of efficacy, I guess the O'Shaughnessy data suggests that, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the combination arm will be more effective. I mean, there's no reason to think it should be less effective than trastuzumab alone. The trastuzumab dose is not compromised. If you get toxicity, you're backing off the lapatinib. So I guess my expectations would be that would be more positive. The sequencing thing, you know, you see the FinHer data showing that that short course of trastuzumab does so much. To me, it's kind of making it tough for the lapatinib to do much more. So I think maybe that one won't be that much different than the control arm. And then the real question will be, what about the monotherapy arm? Where will that fall out? I think it's asking a lot to match Herceptin from my perspective. If you were going to start a patient on Cape Cytobine lapatinib, what would you sit down and explain to the patient, patient education-wise, in terms of what to expect, what to look out for, and what to call you about? First, you've got to go through the problem that they have to take all the lapatinib together, empty stomach, and then 
They have to split the cape cytobine, and generally you try to take it with food. So it's a complicated daily regimen that you've got to make sure they understand that. I frankly try to turn that, what I call mechanical stuff, over to my nurse. Because what I want to try and do is convince the patient, do not be afraid of stopping the drug if you get toxicity. Because I think using these oral medications where, you know, you do get the variability where we know some people will get toxicity, it's so important that the patient not get fixated on the idea that, well, this is what they prescribed I don't want to die. I can put up with any. And so that's where I spend my time trying to really get them to understand that about the capecitabine. With lapatinib, you know, I think it's letting them know about the diarrhea, intervening early with loperamide. Certainly, you know, do the things that your mother always taught you with diarrhea, avoid milk products and do those sorts of things. But again, try to understand it's better to stop for a short period of time, then continue for longer, get really sick, and have to take a much longer break while we get it adjusted. I try to help them understand this is we have to individualize your dose. And unfortunately, the only way we have of doing that is starting out at a dose that we know is probably too toxic for some women. So help us individualize your doses. But I still have patients that They still don't believe you. They'll go a day or two longer than you wish they had.